I would like to begin our new year by expressing my thanks to you as my church family. And I think one of the best passages that I could use to do this is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So will you take your Bibles and turn there with me? We're going to look over verses 1 through 10 not maybe as I would typically do with all of the detail, but more as just an expression of my heart as your pastor. I want to thank you for being the godly people that you are, but also to remind you of God's grace towards us, especially as we look to the new year. Just a brief word of context here um, in this section in Paul's epistle. He speaks to a congregation that he loved uh, in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was located in the northern part of modern Greece. It was a large seaport city of about 250,000 people in the first century. Uh, And actually, it was the largest and most important uh, city in the Roman province of Macedonia. Um, Paul first came there in his uh, second uh, missionary journey, came to Thessalonica, and as a result of his ministry, there were some Jews that came to Christ, but there were a larger number of Gentile proselytes that came to Christ, and even some of the upper-class Greek women believed in the gospel and were miraculously saved. And it's amazing to think, as we're going to see, how So many of these Gentiles turned from their idols to serve the living God. I want you to put yourself in the setting that would have occurred there in the first century. You've gathered together probably um, under some shade trees. Maybe you're in the somewhat of a yard of a large home, maybe on a patio, or you may even be on the beach. But you've gathered together as believers, and you're about to hear from God himself through the inspired pen of the apostles, of the apostle especially that you had grown to love. You're excited. The air is electric with excitement. Everyone gets still. Everyone gets quiet. And again, you know that ultimately you're hearing from God. And then suddenly someone stands up and reads to you this epistle. And we're just going to look at the first 10 verses. Here's how it begins. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. 
You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he has raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Beloved, this would have been like water to a dehydrated tongue. This was spiritual water for a parched soul. People living under increased persecution. They're hearing the word of God. By the way, they wouldn't have had this on their cell phone. They wouldn't even have had a Bible. And so what they would do is they would write their own copy, and in most cases they would memorize the entire epistle. This is a very timely text, even for us, given all that has happened this last year and all that is about to happen. I shudder to think of what is coming our way with the corruption of these liberal politicians that have taken over our country. And I also shudder when I consider the catastrophic failure of evangelical leadership in the church, the combination of doctrinal compromise and worldliness has produced, frankly, a mongrel church that has little, if any, resemblance of New Testament Christianity. Many profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, as Paul said in Titus 1 and verse 16. And Peter even said, because they are disobedient to the word. In 1 Peter 2.8, they end up inventing various forms of their version of Jesus, their version of God, and boy, we see this today, do we not? Today we have the social justice woke Jesus that produces a counterfeit social gospel that cannot save. We have the prosperity cult Jesus, kind of a genie in a bottle that you rub when you want goodies. You have the modalistic Pentecostal oneness Jesus. (laughs) You have the contemporary Christian music Jesus. It's kind of Jesus, my boyfriend. You have the reactionary Jesus of open theism where Jesus isn't sovereign. He's a contingent God that's always trying to figure out what's going on, reacting to things that come his way. You have the egalitarian Jesus of evangelical feminism. You even have the the liberal smiley face Jesus that winks at sin and embraces even the most gross forms of immorality. And on and on it goes. Sadly, the, more, the majority of evangelical churches these days have become kind of like restaurants. 
They, they serve whatever Jesus you want. And of course, this is designed to attract unregenerate people, which it does. And even a lot of undiscerning Christians. This is the kind of church, frankly, that many of our young people are drawn to. It's a, a religious version of kind of hanging out at the mall or a religious version of going to a concert or something. Most churches today are little more than religious social clubs. Very few people have a real love for Christ. Very few people have a real passion to see men and women and boys and girls come to a saving knowledge of Christ, to worship the one true God in spirit and truth. Very few people these days have a desire to grow in the relationship with God to really know the Lord and experience his power and presence in, in their life. And very few people, therefore, want anything with a, to do with a church that has in-depth expository preaching, teaching, and application of the word of God. The primary means, by the way, by which God equips his saints to do the work of ministry, to produce doctrinal unity in Christ-likeness, but folks, this is the kind of church that God will bless. And we see this in places all over the world. And certainly this was true of the church at Thessalonica. This is the only kind of church that is praiseworthy from God's perspective. And yet, this is the kind of church that most people don't really want anything to do with. So I want to just kind of look over this a little bit. And we're going to see a variety of things that help us understand the Spirit of God and what He has to communicate to us. I want you to first of all notice the, the salutation, which is just another word for the greeting. And this was typical, typical by the way, and in that day they would have a salutation and then they would have the body of the letter and then a closing section. And that's what we have here. He says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Uh, it's interesting that here Paul uh, humbly includes his co-laborers who have served along with him as he considers them equals in ministry, as he should. Paul, of course, was the Jewish name for, for Saul. And here Paul um, describes himself in such a way, and, and this is very important, especially to the Jews, because this meant that he was from the tribe of Benjamin, from which centuries earlier King Saul had arisen. It's interesting, too, that some of the early church fathers uh, saw some special significance um, in the Greek word for Paul. It was Paulus, P-A-U-L dash O-S, um, because it was re derived from the Roman Latin name, which was Paulus, P-A-U-L dash U-S instead of O-S, which meant little or small. And Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, called him, quote, the man three cubits tall. Now, a long cubit is about 20 inches, so he's describing Paul as a guy about five foot tall. In fact, in one of the New Testament apocryphal books, the Acts of Paul and Thecla, it's, he's described this way as, quote, bald-headed, bow-legged, strongly built, a man small in size, with meeting eyebrows. I think we would call that a unibrow. 
with meeting eyebrows, with a rather large nose. Then he adds, full of grace, for at times he looked like a man, and at times he had the face of an angel. Little description of the Apostle Paul. But regardless of his physical stature, we know that Paul was a giant among, among the saints, and he regarded himself as, spiritually as a very little man. In fact, he described himself as the least of the apostles. And then also he speaks of Silvanus, who was also Silas. We know him as Silas. He was probably a, a, a Hellenistic Jew and a prominent member, we know, of the Jerusalem church. Um, Silas was sent with Paul to Antioch, you will recall, to communicate the decision of the, of the council of Jerusalem we read about in Acts 15. And from there, we know later on, Paul has an argument with, with Barnabas over John Mark, and then Paul chooses Silas to, to be his co-worker uh, during his second missionary journey. Uh, this, by the way, was also the scribe for, for Peter. And then, of course, there's Timothy. He was a native, native of Lystra in Galatia, modern-day um, Asia Minor. Uh, he, he was Paul's son in the faith. He was a protege that Paul trusted to do many different things. Later, he became the pastor at the church at, of, of Ephesus and was even imprisoned, as we read in uh, Hebrews 13. So together, these three men were instrumental in founding the church at Thessalonica. And he goes on to say, to the church of the Thessalonians. Church, the ecclesia, it means the, the called out ones, to the called out ones of the Thessalonians. Or it could even be translated to the elect ones, especially as we see it used in connection to Paul's phrase in verse 4, his choice of you. So, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he emphasizes this, this visible union that I see all the time in the saints at Calvary Bible Church. This physical union that they had with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is an exhilarating reality. He uses the term Lord, curios, uh, it means uh, Jehovah, the God of Israel, our master. And then the Lord Jesus, uh, it means um, Jehovah saves. This was the name that the father had, had given him at his birth, remember, which underscored his, his, his incarnation, his humility and in his incarnation, as well as his humanity and his purpose in coming to this earth to save. And then also... Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, which means the anointed one, the Greek term for the Messiah of Israel that was promised by the Old Testament prophets. And then he says, grace to you and peace. In other words, grace, he's, he's saying, I, I want you to experience the fullness of God's blessing on you, being united to Christ. I want you to, to feel his unmerited favor in your life. I want you to enjoy the forgiveness of sin, past, present, and future, and the promise of eternal life in his presence. And also peace. I want you to experience not only the objective peace of being reconciled to a holy God through faith in Christ, 
the one that you have offended so deeply, but I also want you to experience the subjective peace of being in relationship with him and enjoying his presence in your life. Then he moves from that little salutation to the body of his letter, and he begins with saying in verse 2, we we give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers. My, how I can identify with that statement as a pastor with respect to you. And here's why, verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God and Father, of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. You know, it's so difficult in talking with other pastor friends that I know in other places in our country and also in Europe in particular where they have a lot of people in their church that are unsaved but think they are. Jesus talks about this, as you know, in Matthew 7, saying that not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom, only those that do the will of the Father. And the only reason we do the will of the Father is because of God's work of grace in those that he has saved. So many people are deceived and and self-deceived. But here in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he is thrilled to know that he is dealing with true believers, true believers. And I can identify with that. Those of you that have been chosen by God, what an amazing gift that is. It's not to say that you're not going to have unbelievers in the church, but by and large, this church and that church was filled with unbelievers. Now, how do you know? Well, we can't fully know a person's heart. In fact, we can't even remotely know a person's heart other than by the fruit of their life. And what gives Paul such, such confidence that they are chosen of God? And what should we look for in ourselves? Well, there are some characteristics here of genuine saving faith that are that are noteworthy and certainly worthy of praise. And here in, we see in verse 4, he's speaking about his choice of you. And I want to give you 10 praiseworthy virtues that give evidence of election, that give evidence that a person is truly born again, and also 10 praiseworthy virtues that fuel my sincere thanks to God for each one of you in this precious church. So let's look at this. Verse 2 again, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. It gives us the idea here that, that they actually prayed together and they prayed for the people by name. All right? There's no vagueness to their prayer life here. And he, adds, he goes on to say, uh, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. And here we have beloved, the first fruit of God's grace that is worthy of praise. Number one, their work of faith. You know, genuine faith, we know biblically, is a gift from God that begins with a spirit-empowered brokenness over sin and a profound awareness that there's no salvation apart from faith in Christ, through, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So faith requires humility. It requires genuine repentance. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And obviously this was evident in the lives of those dear saints 
as it is in your lives here at Calvary. Now, imagine the shock of the unsaved families that were a part of these people. Unsaved families worshiping these idols, and now all of a sudden, you're worshiping who? You're doing what? You can't be serious. Jews and Gentiles coming together in mutual love for a crucified Savior. And not only that, they're actually loving one another, despite the radical difference in culture. And what a joy it is to see believers humbly loving one another, despite all of the differences that we have in backgrounds. And he's, he's rejoicing here over their work of faith. Now, this is not implying salvation by works. We don't earn our salvation, but it speaks of, of works produced by faith. We know it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. Why? So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Beloved, never forget, salvation is always by faith alone. We make no contribution to it. Paul spoke of this in Romans 3 and verse 20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Obviously speaking of the grace of Christ and the gospel. Later in verse 24 and following, sinners are, quote, justified. In other words, we're declared righteous as a gift by God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. In other words, Jesus was the satisfaction or the placation um, of, of God's wrath against sin. So, work of faith speaks of, of just holy conduct. Uh, in fact, the word work in Greek, ergon, is, is a term that, that speaks of, of, of an actual deed, a righteous act or accomplishment. And this is always certain proof of genuine saving faith. It's certain proof of the power of regeneration, of being born again, that instantaneous impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead that changes everything about us, radically changes our disposition. We know that faith without these kinds of works is what? It is dead. Faith without those kinds of works, the works of Christ-likeness, James 2.17, it would be a dead faith. Now, imagine what this would have looked like in that day. I like to put myself in that place. These dear folk, folks, according to verses 6 through 7, received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Obviously, they did not conformed to the culture. Their lives confronted the culture. And you know what this is like. You go, for example, those of you who are in college, you go, or even in high school, you give your testimony, 
of your love for Christ? And what's the reaction? You know, people think you're nuts. Well, even more so in this kind of a culture. But their lives rose above all of the vile insults and all of the accusations hurled against them in the midst of of bitter persecution. They still rose up and stood firm in the faith. And people could see the noticeable difference in their lives. And that's what I see in so many of you, just the work of God's grace. And you want to ask yourself, can this be said of me? Or am I a chameleon Christian? The type of Christian that can kind of blend in with any environment. Folks, you don't want to blend in. You want to stand out for the sake of Christ. Not in some arrogant way, but people need to be able to say, that person is different. They might say, I don't like them. I don't like what they believe, but at least I respect them. And I know that that person is a humble person that will serve others, etc. That's the power of Christ. Well, notice the second evidence of God's choice of them, their labor of love, labor, um, kapos in Greek, it, it refers to grueling, strenuous, exhausting toil. That's what he's referring to. It, it's, it, think of a man that is straining with every fiber of his being to climb a steep cliff. These people exerted everything they had for the sake of the kingdom, to advance the cause of Christ. And and their genuine love for Christ produced within them the power, catch this, to love their enemies, to love those people that hated them, which also translated into their willingness and their desire to really love their brothers and sisters in Christ which sometimes can be even harder than loving people that aren't in the church, right? Remember the old saying, to dwell above with saints we love will be grace and glory, but to live below with saints we know, now that's another story. See, again, remember, Jews and Gentiles hated each other. I mean, just literally hated each other. And only a miracle of God could bring these two extremes together into the oneness that they exhibited. And this, this kind of love, beloved, is always the first fruit of those who are walking in the spirit and not in the flesh, Galatians 5.22. And it is a certain proof of salvation, 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. By the way, this is why I take such great umbrage to this idea of systemic racism in the church. There is no authentic Christian church that struggles with racism. This church does not struggle with racism. No true church struggles with racism. False churches do. True churches don't. There's no such thing as racism in a true Christian church. Well, not only were they thankful for their work of, love, work of faith and labor of love, but notice the third evidence of their election in, in, in um, verse 3. This I would refer to as steadfastness of hope. We don't use that word a lot, but it's a good word, to be steadfast. 
They had steadfastness of hope. Notice in verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, this carries the idea of how the facts speak so clearly that the conclusion is obvious. And what's the conclusion? Brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. In other words, the steadfastness of hope also pointed to the fact that God had chosen them, that they were part of the elect of God. Steadfast, uh, hupomone in the original language, it carries the idea of, of endurance, of, of perseverance, of, of a willingness to stay under the pressure for the glory of God. They were a persevering church, and you all are a persevering church. And I rejoice in that. And of course, their endurance was inspired by their love for Christ and his love for them. I mean, think of what animates perseverance. Is it not our anticipation of seeing Christ in all of his glory? Is it not our desire to enjoy the riches of our eternal inheritance because of what he has done? That was the motivating force for each of them in the face of suffering and temptation. And of course, Paul was afraid for all of the churches that when persecution came their way, that they would collapse under the weight of it all and they would be tempted to abandon their faith, but they didn't. But beloved, you must understand, they remained strong, not out of some inner resolution to, to tough it out. Not on their own strength, but because of their confidence that Christ would do all that he had promised. And as they relied upon him, they experienced the power of his presence in their life. This is the spirit-empowered reality for, for every true believer. 1 John 5 verse 4 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. He goes on to say, who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Beloved, if I didn't believe that, I certainly wouldn't be standing up here. And you wouldn't be sitting out there. But we know that Jesus is the Son of God. True believers, therefore, are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us. Titus 2, 11 through 13 speaks of that. And you want to ask yourself, do I live in light of his second coming? Am I longing for his return? You know, Solomon described this in Proverbs four eighteen: The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. And isn't that, that interesting? I mean, think about it. As believers, we are traversing down this path of life, never knowing for sure what is going to happen. But we do not go from light to darkness, do we? Instead, we go from diffused light to a clearer, more 
bright and brilliant, ineffable, resplendent light of the glory of God. And the older we get, and I can speak from experience now, the older, the older I get, and I know you can identify with this, the more clearly we see the glory of Christ. And the more we long to see more of it, the more the things of this world is, uh, I, I'm, I'm just kind of done with it. You know, I want, this isn't my home, I want Christ. And the brilliant light of heaven that was once a distant glimmer becomes uh, a blaze that you can see more and more clearly like the noonday sun. You know, folks, there is no sunset for the believer, only a sunrise. And the more we commit ourselves to the work of faith and our labor of love and our steadfastness of hope, the more we are able to transcend the, the, the inevitable difficulties of life and all the darkness of this world and see the light and the glory of Christ that awaits us. Now, in verses 5 through 10, and I must hurry here, he describes seven more evidences of, of election that really build upon those first three. Everyone could see their work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. But number four, they could see the reception their reception of spirit-empowered preaching. Their reception of spirit-empowered preaching. Notice verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In other words, we know that God has chosen you because our gospel didn't just come to you as some discourse that, that you heard some spoken word, but rather it had a supernatural force behind it that changed everything about you. It came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. By the way, full conviction here is referring to the immediate effect of, of the Spirit's power and presence in the hearts of the missionaries who spoke the word, not a reference to the Thessalonians who heard it. You see, Paul and Silas and Timothy were acutely aware that they were God's anointed, that they had a message from God to give to people, a message that, when accurately given, would radically transform people by the power of the Spirit. And that message is the same message we preach today. And as you've heard me say many times before, the gospel will do one of two things. It will either harden or soften hearts. They knew that only God, the Holy Spirit, could break through uh, the walls of ignorance and belief. And only the Spirit could penetrate the conscience of the unregenerate. Only the Spirit of God could use His Word to cause a spiritual cadaver to rise from the dead and to be convicted over their sin and to cry out to Christ for His saving grace and be saved. And that's what happened. The Thessalonians, many of them heard that message and they saw God's power in that apostolic proclamation. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4. The Corinthians, of course, were a wicked, vile people. And many of them came to Christ. And he said this, 1 Corinthians 2, 4. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power 
so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And beloved, this is what we must have in gospel-centered, Christ-honoring churches. We, we don't need men in pulpits that, that try to be profound or persuasive, to be witty or funny or, or clever or creative. We don't need men that try to strike up a conversation or a dialogue so that we could all be culturally relevant and all kind of come to some understanding of the truth. We need men that are absolutely consumed with the glory of God and rest confidently in the power of the word and knowing that that's what will change people. Jeremiah spoke of this in Jeremiah 23 and verse 29. I love this passage. God speaks through him and says, Is not my word like fire? And like a hammer which shatters a rock? Well, isn't that what the word does to you? For those of us who know and love Christ, we read his word and that's what happens to us. And these men that preach this kind of word will bear spiritual fruit in their life and in their ministry, which has nothing to do with the size of the church or the programs of a church. It has everything to do with the godliness of the people. And like every pastor, Paul was well familiar with all of the malicious slander, the betrayal. But what's interesting is that his character was his shield against all of that. And for this reason, he said at the end of verse 5, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. In other words, unlike all of the philosophers that were trying to make a buck off of whatever they were talking about, plying their trade to earn a living, Paul and Silas had no such motive. Their motive was real simple, to see men and women, boys and girls, come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And so they worked hard not to be a financial burden to the people and were willing to suffer persecution that others might be saved. Their lives demonstrated the same love and purity and power of their message. And not only could everyone see their their reception of the spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel, but number five, their imitation of Christ. Notice what he says in verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Your friends, a likeness to Christ will always be visible evidence of election, if I can put it that way. Paul and his friends were were loving, and yet they were bold and uncompromising. They they were gentle and caring and compassionate, selfless, hardworking. They joyfully persevered, even in the midst of great persecution. Their lives modeled Christ. And the Thessalonians modeled them and therefore imitated Christ. And this theme of imitation is found in several of Paul's letters. Remember in Philippians 3, verse 17, he said, Brethren, join in following my example. Fathers, can you say that to your kids, your family? Mothers, 
Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16, after he gave a list of all of the ways he had conducted himself in their presence, he said, I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. And in chapter 11 and verse 1, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. You see, folks, Paul understood what we all must understand, whether we're a pastor or an elder, a Sunday school teacher, whatever it is, a parent, we must understand that, that our lives must model Christ because other people are seeing who Christ is through us. We need to be a living object lesson of the power of the gospel. Notice in verse 6, there seems to be a limit here in their imitation primarily to the way they received the word in great distress. He says, you also became imitators. By the way, imitators is mimitai in Greek. We get our word mimic from that. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That is, you became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of all of the suffering that you are experiencing because of your stand with, for Christ. And oh, what a joy it is as a pastor to be able to shepherd people who imitate Christ. I've had other pastors who I know <laughs> tell me, I had one not too, too long ago say, Dave, I don't know how you get away with saying some of the things you do in the pulpit. You know, my people would run me out of the church. And I said, brother, that may be the best thing that ever happened to you. Well, Paul also saw their joy in tribulation. People that love Christ are going to persevere. They're going to respond to the gospel. They're going to imitate Christ when they hear the word and Here we see in verse 6, it says, Having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. What a marvelous thing it is to hear of, of people, even in our country, but certainly in other countries like Muslim countries, that present the gospel, risking their lives. And how can how can someone do this? Well, they can't apart from genuine saving faith. And that's where you have available to you the resources of the Holy Spirit. That's what produces the joy given by the Holy Spirit. You see, only real faith can welcome the gospel message in in spite of severe suffering. Those who have a sham faith will never persevere when the fires of affliction come their way. And Paul saw in the Thessalonians true saving faith, Jews and Gentiles that were willing to risk everything for the cause of Christ. And beloved, believe me, there is a great purging of the church that is coming our way. We now live in a post-Christian country that is hostile to true Christianity. They're not hostile to the Christless Christianity, the cultural Christianity that pretty much dominates our culture, but they are hostile to true Christianity. We will never survive unless we too 
as he says in verse 6, receive the word with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And of course, how we endure in those trials is one of the greatest evidences of genuine saving faith, one of the greatest evidences that God has truly, in his love, by his grace, chosen you to be one of his. Number seven, they could see an exemplary lifestyle. Again, notice verse seven, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. You see, because of their joyful reception of the gospel, despite all of the opposition, they became an example to the rest of the churches in the region, which which would have included uh, the church at Philippi and Berea and and Athens and Corinth and, and perhaps even in Sincrea and so forth. And even their enemies could look at them and say, my goodness, their lives have been changed. And because... Thessalonia was, was on the seaport, and it was located along the Via Ignatia uh, Highway that connected the entire province of, of, of Macedonia and beyond. The news of their faith spread like wildfire. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have email, but they had face-to-face interaction, and... As they spread the good news of the gospel, other people began to understand the power of the gospel, and it also caused many others to hate them for what they believe. But like a tree that digs its roots in deeply to the ground because of the storms that, that pound against it, these early saints became firmly rooted in Christ as they experienced the winds of persecution. We have to ask ourselves, does my life imitate Christ? Can others see that in me? Am I willing to experience persecution for my bold faith? And when it comes my way, do do I continue to experience the joy of the Spirit in my life? Am I an example to other believers? And this is what Paul could see in them. And of course, an exemplary lifestyle also included the eighth evidence of their election, and that is bold evangelism. Notice in verse 8, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. It's interesting, that term, sounded forth, is a a term in the Greek that is used to to describe the loud blast of a trumpet. Or it's also used to describe the sound of rolling thunder. Boy, nobody misses that, right? Rolling thunder. And uh, grammatically, it's in the perfect tense. So it denotes this idea that there's, if I can put it this way, was a constant, continual trumpeting of the gospel message. That's the type of saints they were. And again, no social media here, but face-to-face interaction. And Beloved, I rejoice that so many of you are that way. And aided by their strategic location, 
their spirit-empowered testimony was, was influential. It, it was commanding. It was powerful. And these saints developed a reputation that was known far and wide. And this will be true of every faithful church that is, as Paul says, sounding forth the gospel. Beloved, I would challenge you with all the tools we have available to us these days, especially with social media, you need to be a trumpet that's just blasting all the time. And I'm so thankful for bold evangelism that I see here at Calvary. Number nine, he saw what I would call a reversal of allegiances. Notice at the end of verse nine, and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And we must understand that Gentile idol worship was at the heart of their culture, the heart of their society, the heart of everything they did. In fact, it was dangerous not to honor the gods. Um, to offend a god could bring a curse upon your family, or so they thought, or even a community at large. And Gentiles belonged to what was called trade guilds. We might call them unions today. And each trade guild had their own patron god or goddess. And people whose lives, for example, depended upon agriculture, honored the gods who assured fertility. And whatever you did, you have gods and goddesses that were a part of that. And everyone honored, honored the gods, for example, of, of local government. Uh, and much of the population uh, had specific gods and goddesses that they worship. And depending upon the area of your, of your residence, you would also have to honor the god Caesar. You would have to bow to Caesar. And so the gods were at the core of everything they did. And yet, these early believers, when they came to Christ, suddenly jettisoned all of that, all of that superstition. And as we read in the text, they turned to God from idols to serve a living, as opposed to the dead gods that they were worshiping, a living and a true, as opposed to the deceptive gods, they tr turned from idols to serve a living and a true God, rather than those non-existent false gods. Now, by the way, the term serve does not mean that they started attending a church. And by the way, it wasn't like there were churches to choose from. I mean, you had one church. So if you didn't like that church or whatever, it wasn't like you could go to the one down the street. I mean, that was your church. So work it out, right? But it didn't mean that they just kind of hung out with their friends and they helped do some stuff every now and then. No, the idea of serve here comes from a Greek word to, that means to serve as a slave. To serve as a slave. You see, these saints reversed their allegiances. They abandoned their slavery to false gods and they became a slave of the living and the true God. In other words, if I can put it this way, they were characterized by an internal, wholehearted, joyful commitment to be totally devoted to God. And notice verse 10, and to wait the term carries the idea of a sustained expectation and to wait for his son from heaven, 
whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And this is the final evidence of their election. They had an eager anticipation of Christ's return. I mean, having been utterly transformed by his first coming, they now patiently await for his second coming. And that characterizes you, beloved. And I rejoice in that. We are a second coming church. They knew that God had raised Christ from the dead. They knew that he was alive. They knew, they knew that he would return again and rescue his own from the wrath to come. And frankly, every true believer is going to have a sustained, unwavering expectation that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. The redeemed will glory in this doctrine. The redeemed will live in light of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that he could come at any time. Well, beloved, there we have it. Ten evidences of election, uh, ten characteristics of the lives of these people that thrilled the Apostle Paul. And again, if I can put it this way, it thrilled my heart as your pastor to see you follow along these same lines. It caused him to know, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. These are praiseworthy virtues that persevere against all odds. Their work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope, the reception of spirit-empowered preaching, imitation of Christ, their joy and tribulation, their exemplary lifestyles and bold evangelism, their reversal of allegiances, and finally, their eager anticipation of Christ's return. Well, again, I rejoice knowing that this could be said of each of you. And if it isn't, dear friend, you may want to examine your heart to see if you truly are in the faith. And if you're not, I would plead with you as a minister of the gospel to place your trust wholly in the saving work of Christ and be saved this day. And for those of us who know and love Christ, let's be excited I mean, yeah, there's difficult times coming. Well, welcome to a fallen world, right? So what? Big deal. We're going to see, see God do great and glorious things in and through us, come what may. And we know what's ultimately coming, and in that we rejoice. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. May they bear much fruit in each of our hearts to the praise of your glory. May others see these evidences in our lives, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart for the dear saints at Calvary Bible Church that manifest these virtues so clearly over and over again. What a testimony of your grace and your power in our lives. So we thank you, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.